Well, we're doing a, a series here at Advent, and we're choosing some songs that kind of uh, get the idea of the word that we're focusing on. Uh, today is love. Uh, that song is a story uh, of a king, a good king. Actually, his brother was known as the bad. He was known as the good. Um, and it sees a, a he sees a poor man out his window. Um, the story doesn't quite uh, make sense in a few places because in part of the song, he is referenced as living at the foot of the forest. So I don't know why he's up by the king's house collecting wood, but regardless, uh, he is out uh, collecting wood. The king sees him, follows him through uh, the snow. His, his servant then is getting weary and freezing, and he says, walk in my footsteps as he brings him wood and wine and food. And the last line that they sang there, therefore, Christian men, be sure, wealth or ranking possessing, ye who now will bless the poor, shall yourselves find blessing. At this time of the year, we think about what it means to help other people. And uh, as we think about that, I would say that even as a church, large C, we don't always agree on what love looks like. And uh, I don't know what your uh, social media account looks like if you have one right now, but people are arguing about is the church, large C, being loving in this situation, not being loving in this situation, and so I thought it would be helpful if we had a better working biblical definition of love, uh, what it's not, what it is, and hopefully what it should look like in our lives. And I would say this, that even as we work on that, we're still not going to completely agree. Even if we agree on what the definition of love is, we're not always going to agree on what the application should be. Um, and part of that is because there is a spectrum of God's law and God's grace. And whether you realize it or not, you fall somewhere on that spectrum, and some of you probably lean a little further to one side or the other. In other words, as we lean over towards God's law, we would say, hey, there's requirements, there's you know, boundaries and these different things, and this is what love looks like, where somebody else just wants to show grace. And what I would say is the extreme on both sides is dangerous. On one side, it's a very negative enablement, and on the other side, it becomes legalistic and abusive. And so we want to talk about what love is. And it, those of you who are around know that typically uh, at this church, we kind of go through a book of the Bible. Sometimes we do uh, a, a topical series, kind of like we're doing now. This will even be a little bit different this morning. And so part of it is really going to be a word study, uh, looking at the word love in a, in a larger context. If you have your Bibles, our, our launching point is going to be Isaiah chapter 1. We, uh, we were in Isaiah last week in chapter 9 as we talked about hope. And we said, without Christ, there is no hope. But with Christ, there is great hope. We looked at uh, hope in spite of circumstances. We looked at hope as, uh, Christ, that Christ's advent brings and will bring. 
and we looked at the hope and the character of God. Uh, This morning, as we wrestle with this idea of love, we're going to look at when it doesn't look like it should, uh, part of that is missing on your notes, what it is, and then exactly what it looks like, or at least a, a starting point for what it looks like. So as we said last week, Isaiah is writing during this time, and we looked at the introduction there, and there's some good, decent kings mentioned in this time, one bad king that Isaiah ministers to, Hezekiah, where there's great times of reform, yet Isaiah constantly has this back and forth between judgment and promise. And so in verse 10, Isaiah is laying out, part of the problem that is going on in Israel. Isaiah chapter 1, starting in verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Now, you can already get the flavor of where he is going here when he calls them rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Okay? So this is a judgment call here. Skip down to verse 12, and here's his reasons. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the case. Uh, plead the widow's case. Sometimes God's love doesn't look, or the church's love, or God's people's love doesn't look the way it should. So what does it mean to trample God's courts? Uh, That that term really kind of captured me at the beginning. Uh, Verse 10, when you come before me, who has required you to trample the trampling of my courts? Now, when I think of the word courts, I think of a justice system. Uh, That's what comes to mind. That's not the picture here. When you look at the temple, there was the the main building, the the Holy of Holies. There was an outer court. Think think of the word probably that would be more fitting for us as courtyards. There's different sections of the courts around the temple. And so what Isaiah is saying is when you come into worship in this manner, you are trampling my courts, this area of worship. So what does it look like to trample God's courts? Uh, His first accusation is that there is vain or empty offerings. It's not that the people of Israel stopped offering worship or sacrifices or having solemn assemblies or doing the things that the law required. It's not that they stopped doing those things. In fact, they were doing them, some have argued from Isaiah, even more than was required of them as far as what was required in the, the Old Testament, but, but that they were doing it with a wrong heart, a heart that was not completely God's. It was vain. It was empty. They were going through the motions. 
And part of the reason is because in verse 13, God says, um, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assemblies. There's iniquity and worship going on at the same time. Now, the word iniquity, uh, it's another word for sin, right? Transgression. But when you hear the word iniquity in the Old Testament, it, it carries a kind of a grosser, more intense word for sin. And so he's, he's saying, is, I'm watching this worship. I see this gross sin and this worship going on at the same time. Now understand, God can see all, knows all, is above all, and so he's not fooled by these solemn assemblies because of the people's hearts. What does it look like to trample God's courts? He says in verse 15, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. And so prayer and blood don't go together. Now, I don't think literally people were coming in to, you know, murdering their neighbor and then coming into the temple. I don't, I don't maybe somebody did. That's not the picture here. When God says you have blood on your hands, what is he saying? He's saying that either institutionally or in your practices, you're allowing for people to be abused and taken advantage of, and then you're coming into worship as if you didn't play a part in it. It's gross iniquity. So what's the solution? Verse 16, he says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. There can't be worship without repentance. Worship and repentance should go together. When we, when we worship without repentance, without repentant hearts, we trample his courts. Now, I want you to understand God is loving and forgiving but we also need to understand this side of God that doesn't want his people worshiping without repentant hearts. In verse 17, we have these phrases that are repeated in different ways throughout the Old Testament to learn to do good, seek justice. We think of Micah 6.8. Correct oppressions, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the case of the widow, and he says, worship without taking care of the least of these is a way that you trample my courts. If you come to worship and you're not caring for the vulnerable, that is a form of false worship. So what do we do? We need to care for, we need to make room for, we need to stick up for those who um, are under the, the radar of true justice. That's how we trample God's courts. Now, I don't think this is an exhaustive list, but it causes us to examine our own heart. It can become easy to go through the motions of worship. It can become easy to go through the motions of prayer. It can become easy, maybe, for some to write a check and give an offering without making it an offering of worship. It can be easy to serve in a place or do a thing or be a part of something when our heart 
is not in the right place. It becomes easier for some reason to give to the needy during this time of year and then forget about it for another 11 months. So what is love? Um, I have said this before, and, and I, I think it just illustrated, illustrates it the best. When I was a youth pastor, I would tell the girls in my youth group, look, a guy can take you out to a nice dinner, sit across the table from you, have a nice little candlelight there in the restaurant. It can be just that beautiful scene that you just you know, hope for and, and long for. And he can look across that table and look you in the eyes and say, I love you. And your heart might start to patter a little bit. And then the waiter or waitress could bring the pizza and he can look at the pizza and say, I love pizza. And if love means the same thing, we're in trouble here. So we need to understand what love is. So we're going to look at uh, several verses that give us a definition of love that I think that we need to work with and work from as a church. I think overshadowing and most important is this. God is love. First uh, John uh, 4.8, um, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. God is love. The very definition of love is based on God. Now hear this. There's not a definition of love that the world produces that we then try to measure God with. God is the definition of love, and he measures us with it. And what we hear over and over again is our society saying, well, wait a second, you're not love, Church, you're not love, Christian. You're not love, people, because you're not operating in the way that I define love. And so we need to understand, first and foremost, God is love. All that is good comes from God. God is the the good, loving God, and every part of his character is defined by his love. His judgment is defined by his love as well as his mercy. His wrath as well as his grace. Love is not a concept of the world. It is who God is. Therefore, anything that we call love that does not have God at its center is not really love. Now, that can seem, at first, a bit harsh. There is a form of brotherly love that we express with a lot of different people. There's a general love that God has for all of his creation, but when we really look at what love is, it's centered in God. And so if we say we love something and it's outside of of God, then it's not really love. Second, I think it's important for us to understand that love has boundaries. Um, in 1 John 5.3, it says, uh, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Now, we in the West 
do not do well with rules. Uh, let's remind ourselves that we rebelled against a king. Uh, that most of you drink coffee because we threw all the tea in the bay. If you look back at history, it's why most of you eat beef over lamb as well. Because they taxed the lamb and we ate the beef. We don't like rules. And so to say that God's love has boundaries or walls goes against our being. The world's view of love looks a little different. Uh, not on your notes there, but uh, in a book I've been re reading uh, lately, A Disappearing Church by Mark Sayers. He talked about four assumptions that our society works from uh, that he would argue are wrong. Assumption number one is that true love has no moral boundaries. God's love does have boundaries. And I would argue without boundaries, love is abusive. Now, let me just kind of um, illustrate this in unfortunately kind of a little bit of a gross way. Most of us would say, I would hope, that pedophilia is wrong, that it's a sin. There is a group of people who claim to be educated who are arguing today that that is a preference that people can't control. And if it's a preference, then we should not judge it. Um, and the talks are out there, and I, I looked, I thought they were fake. Uh, they were not. And so most of us would say, oh, that's gross. And of course we agree that that is wrong. But here's the problem. As soon as the whole of society says, well, I don't know if that's wrong, I don't want to make a judgment, then the boundaries change. And if we allow society to define love's boundaries, then it's always going to be changing and up to popular opinion, which takes us right back to the garden. When Satan said to Eve, did God really say? Now we read that, what should have Eve's response be? Yes, he really said it. That's the boundary. He gave me a boundary because he loves me. That's not the way we think. So the world would say true love has no moral boundaries, but scripture would say there are boundaries. Assumption number two is true love means unconditional acceptance and the end of judgment. Uh, we're going to have a fun little theological discussion just real quickly. Um, and again, you can take this home and, and wrestle with it some more. Uh, you don't have to completely agree with me, but... I want to ask you just a question. Is God's love unconditional? Um, I had fun this week. I walked into Rich's office, and I said, I have a theological question for you. I said, is God's love unconditional? And he said, you know, he gave a quick answer, and then I said, well, what about this? Well, what, what, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by love now? Now we're having a discussion. And the church has often used the term God's love is unconditional. And I would say yes or no, yes and no. Uh, no, it 
actually, God's eternal love does require one of two things. Either that we are perfect or that there's a substitutionary atonement for our sin. Yes, in the sense that God does not put any conditions on you before coming to Christ. I would argue that God's love is better than unconditional because he himself meets the condition. God loves us so much, it says, I I can't receive you as sinful, and so I am going to bridge the gap by giving Jesus Christ in the place. I'm going to meet the condition. It doesn't require anything from you because God provides the condition in Christ. Unconditional, when we say that, denotes the idea that you are okay as you are, but we're not. We're not okay as we are. So God receives you as you are, and he makes you holy in Christ. The third assumption that our world works with is that true love and authority have nothing to do with one another. We would say, you can't have authority and love. But if God is the definition of love, there is an authority there. Again, you can hear the serpent say, did God really say this? Does the church really teach this? Does the Bible really say? If God is the definition of love, it must be consistent with who he is. And the fourth assumption I think the world works from is that true love is anti-institutional. And I've wrestled with this myself. I grew up um, in a a product, right, of the 70s and 80s and post-60s, those of you who lived through that. I was but a child. We fight against the institution. The institution is bad. God gave us the church. The church is God's plan for his redemption through Christ. We we are plan A, there is no plan B. The church is referred to as Christ's bride. To say we don't need any authority from the, we want Jesus but not the church is offensive to the groom. Church, commitment, Covenant relationships are not bad things if they're done right. God is love. Love has boundaries. And third, love is sacrificial. Love is sacrificial. Greater love has no one than this to lay down his life for his friends. Real love is sacrificial. Um, I think most of us uh, who have been around the church are familiar with these words. I just want to say this. Uh, If true love, if God's love is sacrificial and we're to love the way that God has loved, love is hard. Real love is actually very hard. And if you think it's easy, you might be doing it wrong. Because two sinful people living together in holy matrimony produces conflicts. And if it hasn't, then you're probably doing it wrong. Love is hard. It's sacrificial. 
It points to our own selfishness. Fourth, love is committed or loyal. Um, those of you who have been around, you know that I, I love the, the word loving kindness in the ESV that's used in many of the Psalms. Um, this Psalm says, uh, I, will, I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord hath bestowed on us. That term loving kindness is often uh, in uh, translation of the word hesed, and it's God's loyal love, um, his, his committed love. And that's a beautiful thing. Uh, true love is committed. It's loyal. That doesn't mean that there's not breaks, uh, that there's not struggles. You know, we think of Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Peter. There's times when, when love has difficulties. Uh, but if it's God's love and it is sacrificial, and it's, it's from him, it's going to result in a love that lasts actually for eternity, right? And so it is, it is committed. Love is God-centered. Uh, I love this verse, and we probably could have just focused on this. Uh, for from him and through him and to him are all things. All things, all things are centered around God, especially his love. It is loving others, uh, loving others in respect to God, who they are, God's created beings. It's wanting the good for others and knowing that the best good for somebody else is God. And we talked about this in our benevolent study, but if, if I... Uh, feed somebody or close somebody or give somebody a home and care for all their physical needs but don't care for their spiritual needs, have I really truly shown them love? We are broken financially. We are broken in our view of the world and we're broken spiritually. True love cares about all those things. Love is from him. Love is through him, and love is to him, from, through, and to. Um, when I was a kid watching the cartoons uh, that I grew up with, I always loved when, when one of the characters had a boomerang, um, you know, and they would throw the boomerang, and it would just go way out there, and it would come back, and then at some point in time in my childhood, somebody got me a toy boomerang, a Nerf one, a plastic one. Uh, they never worked. Um, it really was more like a stick. It went out, but it didn't come back. Um, or it certainly didn't go where it was supposed to go. God's love is like a boomerang. In this, it goes out, it goes to and it comes back. It's really a beautiful thing when it's operating correctly. When we love other people, it goes out from God to that person. And if we've loved them in Christ's love, it comes back to God in worship and thanks. Now, what we like, if we're honest, is when the love comes out from us and it goes to somebody else, and then it comes back to us. That's not love. 
when it goes out from God, maybe through us, to somebody else, and comes back to God, that is real love. Real love is a gift. We know uh, this next verse so well. For God so loved the world that he gave a precious gift, his only son. I think that we wrestle with the concept of trying to become worthy of God's love trying to become deserving of God's love? Or maybe the other struggle is already believing that you have arrived. Of course you're worthy of God's love. The reality is we're not. But he loves us anyway as a gift. Now, I don't know about your house, but Gifts are starting to appear under the tree. My wife wraps them beautifully, and, and you, I can't wait for my two-year-old granddaughter to, to be able to experience that. She's right at the age now where she, she's starting to get birthdays. I don't, she hasn't figured out Christmas yet, but Christmas morning is going to be fun. Now, I guarantee you when she walks into our house, having open presents at her home, she is going to want to tear into some gifts. We would never think of giving a gift and not having somebody open it. We want them to open it. We want them to experience it. I had a grandmother who, uh, and because of age, she just trumped things, you know. She would come to visit, and we say, here's your Christmas gift. And she said, well, I'm going to open it now. We said, oh, no, wait till Christmas. She said, I will not. There was no gift that you could leave wrapped for her. She was opening it right away. Isn't that the way we should approach God's gift? Why would we get such a wonderful gift and not open it, not tear into it, not enjoy it? God's love is a gift. Um, In Ephesians chapter 5, when I am doing marriage counseling with young folks, I, I use this definition of love. Love protects and provides. Um, In Ephesians, it says this, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So in this passage, um, there is a little definition there that goes beyond this. So what does love look like? Paul goes on to say, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. The idea of nourish has the idea of feeding. And when I talk with young couples, uh, I say this is more than the man bringing home or the woman bringing home the bacon. Feed here has the idea of feeding physically, emotionally, spiritually, relationally. So the idea of feeding is providing. True love provides for who we are. And then it says cherishes. Cherish has the idea of, of bringing in close, right? That, that bear hug, bringing in close, and it's, it's an idea of protecting. Ah, the man smiles. Or the woman, especially when you're in northern Idaho. I pastored there. 
Mm. Have gun, will protect. It's more than that. It protects emotionally. It protects spiritually. Protects relationally. Protects emotionally. That's how we care for ourselves. We provide and protect. How do we love other peoples? We provide and protect. Now, we couldn't talk about love without at least mentioning 1 Corinthians, and I don't want to mention the whole thing. Our culture loves to pull this chapter and say this is love, and it's a great definition of love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Absolutely. Um, And it ends with love never fails. Love never ends. That's true of of God's eternal love. It doesn't end. It's not going to come to a stop. God's not going to one day uh, wake up and realize, oh man, I have really been missing it with you. It never ends. And I would agree that love is kind. The problem is that kindness needs to be defined by all the other things that we've already looked at. It has boundaries. It's in God. It comes from God. It is all these different things. It's not absent of all these other definitions of love. And then finally, what we want to just kind of end on this morning is that love is actually an action. I really appreciate it. I had a Bible teacher in high school, Christian school, and uh, as he would tell his story, whatever parts of his story, he would describe some dating relationships that he had in his life before he met his wife. And he would always describe it this way, I fell deep in like. You're saying that wasn't the real love, right? He met his wife later. And it's always a good reminder that sometimes the emotions that we feel may not be love. Now, I know that our society has taught us that if you're at the right dance at the right time, you can look across the room and meet eyes with somebody and say, true love. I keep saying true love because it's from a movie that they define true love, which is a very worldly way of basing true love. It's a cute movie, and I love it, and probably need to go back and watch it again. It's been a while. But true love is defined by this just emotional feeling. And so love is actually an action. So what does it look like? Wow. Wow. I don't think we could really define that all this morning, but let me give you a few things to work from. God's love requires a heart change. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. That's a loving thing to do. But Jesus goes on to say, and if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times and say, I repent, then you have to forgive him. Now, I would have all sorts of questions at that point in time. Well, Jesus, is that really repentance if he did it again? Doesn't repentance mean change of action? I think we need to have some definitions here. 
But the disciples' reaction is probably a little bit more realistic. The disciples looked at Jesus and said, increase our faith. But the two don't seem to go together. You need to keep forgiving people. And they said, we need, a, we need increasing of faith to do that. The reality is, loving the way that God wants us to love is impossible without Christ. The good news is you don't have to do it on your own. As followers of Jesus Christ, we have been changed. We are filled with the Spirit, and God's Spirit does does it through us. In in other words, in order to love the way that God wants us to love, there has to be a heart change. In fact, that's the conclusion of the minor prophets and the prophets. And we look at Isaiah, and he says, you're doing this. It's vain worship. It's empty. There's iniquity. And God comes to the conclusion in the prophets and says, what we need is a heart change. Read Joel. So we have a heart change. And so sometimes when we are struggling in love, we need to do a checkup. Are we loving through Christ? Have we had a true heart change? Second, I think God is more concerned with doing what is right than being right. Um, you know, I, obviously there's truth in God's word. And I wish sometimes, you know, when it gets to some of this nitty gritty, you're driving through the Safeway parking lot and at every exit at the Safeway parking lot up here, right, there is somebody holding a sign, every single one. And if you're like me and you plan your meals poorly, you're at Safeway seven days a week. But, you know, hopefully less for most of you. What is love? What is the loving thing to do there? You have family members that keep coming back, keep coming back, asking for this, asking for that. Maybe it's your kids or your grandkids. What is love? And there's sometimes that I wish maybe that God maybe spelled out some of the things in our culture of how we apply these things. I think we have enough to wrestle with and talk about, but I think what God desires is that we have the conversation about what, God, what love looks like. That we discuss it. That we wrestle with it that we look at what it really means to to do, to love. If we love God, how do we love people? Jesus tells us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. He doesn't always tell us to defend ourselves. He doesn't say to make sure that your enemy knows why he is wrong and you are right, which is what a lot of people are doing on social media. What the Bible tells us is just to keep loving one another. And if we declare that person an enemy and say, um, I don't have to love them, you've missed what Scripture says. So we want to call them something else. But we are to love those who are difficult to love. That's what God is saying. And he wants us to do it in a practical way. He wants us to give them a, a cold glass of something to drink, not to 
douse them with a cold glass of water. I don't think that's the point of the passage. We're to care for their needs. That's how we treat those who are difficult to love. Third, uh, we need to honor those who are, who are left out. Um, it's funny how you read a passage so many times and maybe uh, miss something, and, and this uh, came up in some of my reading that I was doing recently. It might have came from the same book. Um, in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, we're talking about the body of Christ and spiritual gifts and how no one part is greater than the other. Um, he goes on to say in uh, verse 24, um, he says, which, um, I'll go back a little bit on, on verse 22. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And on the unrepresentable parts, we, we uh, are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. Now, we honor different parts and gifts and strengths within the church, but what God is saying, let's make sure that we give greater honor to the ones that are less represented, less known, quieter, smaller. Let's honor them. In fact, Scripture tells us that we're supposed to outdo one another in honor. Usually when we have a discussion about what church ministry should look like, at some point in time, somebody brings up a group of people that we need to give greater attention to. I would say honor, whether it's seniors or younger. I just once would like to have the argument that, that Scripture seems to indicate we should have. No, 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 no. I want them to have their way so that we can grow that group. No, 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 no. Don't do that for us. Let us do this for you. I've never had that argument in my office, not once. But what about my group? What about this group? They should be more honored. They're the next generation. They're the generation that pays the bills. Which, when, when do we have a biblical argument the way that God intended where we're trying to outdo one another? That's what the church should look like. You see, when we say, no, I want it to go my way, according to my group or my preferences or my background, we look just like who? The world. The world looks at us and says, you are no different than we are. Why should you define love? But when we start outdoing one another, out-honoring one another, caring for people that nobody else is caring for. You know, that's how the church became known because Rome was throwing children out and the church was picking them up. So what are these people? Who are these people? They love differently. And I think we are posed like no other time in history that when we love in a biblical way, the world goes, that is different. Providing and protecting those who cannot provide or protect themselves. James says, what is true religion? But it cares for the orphans and the widows. 
You are called, I am called, we are called as a church to be ambassadors of reconciliation. Helping people be reconciled to God and helping people be reconciled to one another. So here's some application and action for us. I think that all of us need to work on our definition of love. Um, If I asked you to, to define love, most of us would kind of stumble through a few different things. The Bible actually has a lot to say about love. And um, this is a, I came up with 10 things and stopped there. Um, you could do more. Uh, go to a Blue Letter Bible on, on the internet or go to a Bible Gateway uh, and do a, just do a search on love and just read the verses that come up about God's love and, and understand what God's love looks like and doesn't look like. I think we all probably need to work on that definition a lot. A lot. Second, I think it's important for us to recognize that when we, when we don't love people correctly, when we don't love one another in the church correctly, when we don't love our family correctly, we actually trample God's courts when we come to worship. Now, we have been forgiven. Uh, we have a new heart. We are being changed uh, we have come to Christ and, and God sees uh, his, his life, Christ's life imputed for us. All those things are very true. But let's be careful not to presume upon those things and enter into worship in a wrong heart. Let us be repentant. Let us love with God's type of love. One time I was having a discussion with a group of Christians about an issue and one of them says, well, I want to to err on the side of, and I can't remember, conservatism is what the person said to me when we were arguing. And I said, okay, um, I guess if I want to err, I don't want to err, but if we're going to err, I guess I want to err on the side of grace. Now, I think both people, one, one person was saying, I want to err on the side of being doctrinally conservative, and I was saying, I want to, I want to lean on, on the, the idea of grace. And so at some point in time, we need to recognize that we're not always going to see things the same way. But if we come to God with an unrepentant heart, if we're not trying to show other people love, if we're not out there wrestling with it, we can come to worship and trample his courtyard. Third, uh, I think it would be good for us to, to go over that list of what, what it looks like or, or what the definition of and choose one thing and, and work, work with it. Maybe as a couple, you could look at one of the definitions and, and ask how you could better incorporate that in your marriage. Maybe as a small group, you can look at what it really means to be more concerned with doing what is right than being right. Maybe as a family, you could think about how you can honor somebody who isn't always honored in the group or in the church. Maybe just secretly this year, you can honor somebody who doesn't always get honored. Um, one of the reasons that Pastor Rich and I decided that we wanted to, to help locally one of the schools or that we love to support what Michelle is doing with Laundry Baskets of Love is because those are groups of people that don't normally get honored. They're forgotten about. And so 
maybe there's a way that you as a family can, can do something this year that maybe honors somebody that doesn't always get honored. Maybe it's your role to be an ambassador of reconciliation for somebody. Maybe you can bridge that gap with them. I think that uh, we can talk about love at Christmas time and we can all have a good feeling. Or we could really talk about love and we can be uncomfortable, which is maybe what I created this morning. Because God's love is actually very hard. And we need to work it out. Let's pray. God, thanks for this morning. Uh, Thanks that we get to worship together. Thanks for those who came out uh, to worship this morning, regardless of the different things that are going on. We pray that your name would continue to be lifted up in our congregation, uh, in our homes, in our marriages, in our friendships and relationships. We pray that you would be honored. God, I pray that you would stir our hearts as churches and as individuals that we might think of real ways that we could practically love those who are in need around us, uh, that we can do it in a way that it comes from God and gets back to God. We pray that our church would be a place where your love is seen as being different than the world's because it is based on your word and on your character. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.